Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 172, and it's all about music therapy Renaissance style. The show notes will be up at englandcast.com slash music of the spheres, music of the spheres. So in this episode, we're actually going to bring together a few things, math, music, healing, and even string theory. I'm going to talk about some Greek and Roman ideas. And you might be thinking, Heather, why are you talking about this stuff that happened 1500 years before the Tudors? This is the Renaissance English History Podcast. There's already a history of Rome. Mike Duncan did that. Well, with your permission, I shall explain. Remember that the big thing that was happening during the Renaissance was the ancient texts from Greece and Rome being rediscovered, in part through the sack of Constantinople, also the Reconquista of Spain, taking back the areas that had been Arab and getting a whole lot of new Arab texts and Arab translations, and also increased trade and contact with the Mediterranean world outside of Europe. So these manuscripts were making their way back into Europe, especially back into Northern Europe and England, where they were being studied by scholars. So in order to truly understand the Tudor England mindset, especially with things like medicine or education, we need to hop back in time and begin with the Greeks and Romans. So that's what we're doing here. A few years ago, I went to a concert um, of Beethoven's Fourth Piano Concerto. It's a piece of music that's famous because it uses the tritone in the second movement. It's an interval that is so uncommon and so disconcerting. It was actually given a Latin name, Diabolus in Musica, the devil in music. The tritone is an interval that was deemed so dangerous. People thought it conjured up the devil. So for those of you who are musicians, it's the interval of three whole tones dividing an octave, so a C natural to an F sharp, for example. There are stories that it was expressly forbidden in church music, according to canon law, though I can only find references to it being forbidden and not the actual law itself. So I can't say that for sure. It seems like a lot of people think that it was forbidden, but I can't actually find the official forbidding of it. Either way, it's also an augmented fourth. It's the interval between the first two notes in Maria from West Side Story. So if you know that Maria, it just longs to be resolved. Can you imagine the Marie without the A at the end of it? So just kind of having it there just seems kind of unnatural and sort of sinister. Some people say it was the devil in music because the tritone is so close to the interval of a perfect fifth that two monks could too easily sing dissonantly as they tried to chant in parallel fifths. But whatever the reason is, for a thousand years, people avoided writing with the tritone. Although it did become popular again in the 19th century, for example, with Beethoven in this piano concerto that actually tells a dialogue between Orpheus, the soloist, and the Furies, the orchestra, at the gates of the underworld. So where does this idea of the devil being in some intervals come from? And conversely, can actually some intervals perhaps conjure angels? The early mathematician Pythagoras discovered different ratios within musical harmonies, so a perfect fifth, for example, by playing around with glasses of water and plucked strings and hammers and anvils and all kinds of interesting other experiments. One of his ideas was that the planets in their orbits made sounds as they were whizzing through space around the Earth. 
So let's break that down. This is what's known as the music of the spheres, and it brings together this metaphysical idea that there are mathematical relationships that express the tones of energy, which manifest in numbers. And all of this is connected within a pattern of proportion. Pythagoras, his big discovery was that the pitch of a note is in inverse proportion to the length of the string that produces it. And that intervals between these harmonious sounds and frequencies, they form ratios. And in his theory, which became known as the harmony of the spheres, Pythagoras thought that the sun, moon, and planets all have their own unique sound, their own unique tone based on their revolution. And that the quality of life here on earth reflected the tenor of the celestial sounds, which are actually unable to be heard by the human ear. Plato followed after this and also did some experimenting. And he said that astronomy and music are twinned studies of sensual recognition astronomy for the eyes and music for the ears, and both required knowledge of numerical proportions. A thousand years after Pythagoras, the 6th century Roman philosopher Boethius wrote a book called De Musica, where he talked about three branches of the medieval concept of musica. There was musical universalis, musical humana, which was the internal music of the human body, And then there was the music made by singers and instrumentalists. Boethius believed that human music could reveal the order of cosmic music that reflects the beauty of God. So basically, to break that down, there are sounds which the human ear can't hear made by these planets that create this kind of music of the spheres, music in space that we can't hear. But if we start to understand the proportions that they're based on and the mathematical relationship to those harmonies that we can't hear and then put music to it that we can hear, we can reach some kind of a a deeper relationship with God and with our soul. So today, musical therapists have studied the reactions of humans and all kinds of living cells to certain types of music. And In books like Daniel Levitin's This Is Your Brain on Music, neuroscientists explain the way our bodies react to music. For example, one study has found that plants exposed to a speaker playing Bach and another playing acid rock will actually grow towards Bach, which, you know, honestly shows that plants have excellent taste. But this idea isn't new. And our tutor friends, especially the learned, would have known all about the idea that music affects our bodies. And they would have been very familiar with all of these ideas of music and the music of the spheres. So Boethius, that 6th century Roman philosopher, he actually wrote anecdotes showing the power of musica instrumentalis, the musical instruments, to influence psychic problems, mental health. And his treatise, spread with additional notes being added each time throughout Europe during the Middle Ages. De Musica was actually still on some university syllabi until the 19th century. So anyone going into medicine, going into any sort of natural philosophy, any kind of university course during the Middle Ages and the early modern period would have known all about it. Jumping forward 500 years, in 1100, there was a monk called Edmer in Christchurch, Canterbury, And he wrote down a biography of St. Dunstan, who had been the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 10th century, 
and had done a lot to reform the English church. He died in 988. Edmer said that Dunstan was a musician who really enjoyed playing for his friends, and he was really good. He writes, It was his custom to often soothe himself and the spirits of many others for the troublesome occupations of the world, and to urge them towards the healing of celestial harmony, as much by the sweetness of the words which, sometimes in the mother tongue, sometimes in the other, he interspersed with melodies as by the harmonious music which he expressed with them. This is a pretty direct reference to the idea of the music of the spheres, music bringing people into accord with celestial harmony. And then around 200 years later in the 13th century, there's a text from Canterbury where instructions for the infirmary are written down for St. Augustine's Abbey. And it specifically says that in the infirmary, people need to take great care with what music is played. But if a brother is sick and it's deemed that he needs to hear the sounds and harmony of music, he may be led into the chapel and music may be played while the doors are closed so that the sounds don't flow back into the infirmary. William of Auvergne was the Bishop of Paris in the 13th century, and he wrote a treatise called De Universo, completed in 1236. He wrote an entire chapter on how music can be used as a cure. But again, he's talking mostly about mental health at this time. He talked about Plato's view on the soul of the universe and the human soul. And Plato, he says, gives the universe a soul which is created according to the mathematical proportions of music, and the human soul is made in the same way. So a musician can actually produce changes in the body and soul of a human because music has a mathematical basis, and we react to it because the human soul shares the numerical motions of the soul of the universe. So if you can start to understand the mathematics of the soul of the universe, and then you replicate that for humans, it can actually change how our minds and our bodies react because of how our soul is reacting. But then William says that Plato's position can be refuted in many ways and with many kinds of arguments. So he's not buying it from that standpoint. But while he doesn't agree with Plato's logic, he does think that music has the power to heal. He includes it in an entire chapter on mental illnesses, including what we would call depression, which he calls diseases of the spirit. And he says many diseases of the spirit can be cured by musical sounds. Moving on into the 15th century, we have the case of Hugo Vandergoes, who experienced some kind of a psychological breakdown after 1477. He was a brother in the house of the Red Cloister near Brussels. The prior gave instructions to the brethren to treat him with music, but he didn't have much success. The chronicler of the community wrote down the episode in the early 16th century, about 30 years later, and he said that Prior Thomas was summoned to help Hugo. He, Prior Thomas, said that Hugo had the same disease that vexed King Saul, and remembering how Saul had found relief when David plucked the harp, He said that melody should be played without restraint in the presence of Brother Hugo, though it did little to relieve him. By this point in history, previously unavailable translations, especially from the Roman Galen, helped to bring about more discussions of the relationship between music and medicine and health. And in these texts, we find all kinds of information about how music can promote digestion and bloodletting and is particularly helpful in fevers, lovesickness, and melancholia. 
When the plague is going on, music will boost the spirits of the individuals and communities, and that will make them healthier overall. The job of the physician was to maintain the balance of the humors in the body or restore it when it had gone kind of wonky. So in the famous Tassinum Sanitatis by the Arabic scholar Ibn Butlan, translated into Latin in the 13th century, we read that musical instruments are aids to the maintenance of health and the restoration of health once lost, according to the difference in the complexions of men. For this art of music was anciently ordained to draw the mind back into healthful habits, and thus doctors are dedicated to its use to cure bodies. Therefore, they may employ tones for the sick mind, just as they do medicines for the sick body. And the operation of music on the mind is shown by the gait of camels when their drivers are leading them heavy laden and sing to comfort them. In short, what's good for the mind is also good for the body. Let's hop further a bit to the Renaissance in the period when the scientific inquiries are really beginning. Astronomers and astrologers are busy studying the heavens. You can see my previous episodes on Tudor astronomy and signs. And music provided an excellent study guide. Of course, one of the very first things a doctor would do when he was called to a patient was to cast their horoscope. When you bring into the equation that music was one way to tap into the movement of the planets, we see things primed for a rebirth of musical therapy. We see several themes coalescing during this period, including the integration of musical theory from an astrological view and a deeper understanding of the writers of the Islamic doctors that talked about the correspondence between the planets and the signs of the zodiac and musical tones and the humors of the body. So musical therapy becomes part of the lexicon of doctors and occult philosophists, and it's included in the idea of a rational worldview. People begin to try to fit musical tones to the stars in order to banish problems for both the soul and the body. The Italian philosopher Marsilio Ficino died in 1499. He was a theologian, mathematician, astrologer, physician. He wanted to bring together faith and reason in a quest for self-knowledge and the knowledge of God. He had this goal to try to unite Plato and Christianity, and he held a holistic view of healing as a way of having the soul become back in harmony with the soul of the world, which Plato had talked about. He believed that the most powerful way to restore this unity was through music. Those who heard Ficino play thought that he was Orpheus reborn. Lorenzo de' Medici heard him playing in the countryside, and he thought that Orpheus himself had returned to the world. He believed that true self-knowledge was to be found through the practice of astrology, in understanding the movement of heavenly bodies, and understanding their own energies through music. Plato, as we saw, understood that sound echoed in the heavens as planets and stars moved about and aligned, and trying to bring that same sound to our human ears, we can bring the soul back into its earliest phase of being at one with the soul of the universe. All of this interest in music and the cosmos found a zenith in the Renaissance with Kepler. He was intrigued by the connection between music and astronomy. So Johannes Kepler, Lutheran mathematician and astronomer, devoted much of his time after publishing The Mystery of the Cosmos looking over tables and trying to fit the data to what he believed was the true nature of the cosmos as it relates to musical sound. In 1619, he published Harmonious Mundi, literally the harmony of the worlds, 
expanding on the concepts that he introduced in the mystery book. And he thought that musical intervals and harmonies describe the motions of the six known planets at the time. He believed that these harmonies, while we couldn't hear them, could be heard by the soul and that it gave a very agreeable feeling of bliss afforded him by this music in the imitation of God. His book Harmonies is split into five books or chapters, and book three focuses on defining musical harmonies, including consonance and dissonance, and intervals including problems with tuning and their relations to the string length, which was the discovery made by Pythagoras, and also what makes music pleasurable to listen to in his opinion. In the fourth book, Kepler talks about a metaphysical basis for the system, along with the arguments for why the harmony of the worlds appeals to the intellectual soul in the same manner as the harmony of music appeals to the human soul. And then in the fifth book, he talks about the orbital motion of the planets and how that motion nearly perfectly matches with musical harmonies. Kepler did think that the harmony of the worlds was inaudible. But you could talk about the motions of the planets and put notes to them that we could hear. And he actually came up with the choir setup of the solar system. So he thought that planets with larger eccentricities have greater variation in speed and produce more notes. Earth's maximum and minimum speeds, he said, are in a ratio of 16 to 15, or that of a semitone. Whereas Venus's orbit is nearly circular and produces only a single note. Mercury has the largest eccentricity, the largest interval, a minor tenth. So he put all of this down in his book, and thus he concluded that with all of the relative speeds of the planets, the solar system is composed of two bases, which is Saturn and Jupiter, a tenor, Mars, two altos, Venus and Earth, and a soprano, Mercury which had sung in perfect concord at the beginning of time and could potentially arrange themselves to do that again. So this is Kepler writing in the early 17th century. So there's no doubt that our learned Tudor friends would have known all about these ideas. And we're going to talk about that in a second as well, because you know that if I'm going to bring this all back to 16th century England, I have to bring in John Dee, right? In a paper called In the Key of Dee, Phil Legard of Leeds Beckett University discusses John Dee's musical education and his philosophy around music. Remember that John Dee was Elizabeth I's personal astrologer. He chose the date of her coronation ceremony, so there's very little doubt that Elizabeth herself would have had some familiarity with these ideas. In 1564, John Dee wrote Monus Hieroglyphica, which is a treatise of 24 chapters about a symbol that D created called the hieroglyphic monad, which loosely translates to the sacred symbol of oneness, and that it has links to Boethius's De Musica, which he would have studied at St. John's College, Cambridge. Also, given the entrance exams to get into Trinity, where he was a fellow and underreader of Greek, it stipulated that candidates had to be able to sing. So D likely would have been in a choir. And he also owned several books and treatises on music. And he wrote about music in the same way that other people wrote about the sciences of the day. He wrote, the physician heals and regulates the soul through the body, but the musicians heal and control the body through the soul. Thus, he who is able to provide the many services of a doctor and of a musician will be able to govern the bodies and minds of men almost as he wishes. Finally, an alchemical poem. 
Thomas Norton was an alchemist who died in 1513 from Bristol. He's most famous for his long poem. It's over 3,000 lines long, written in 1477, all about how to practice alchemy. No doubt John Dee and other Tudor alchemists would have been familiar with this poem. It was very popular. And I'm going to read a section to you about music. Join them together also arithmetically, but still numbers proportionately. Join your elements musically for two causes. One is melody, which there are chords that will make to your mind the true effect when that ye shall find. And also for like as diapason, which is an octave, with diaponte and with diatessaron, perfect fifth and fourth, with other chords which in music be, with their proportions cause harmony, much like proportions be in alchemy, as for the great numbers actual. But for the secret numbers intellectual, ye must search them, as I said before, out of Raymond and Bacon's lore. So there's a secret to understanding music as well, right? And understanding music from an alchemical perspective. The entire theory of the music of the spheres went awry during the Enlightenment when science drifted apart from the humanities and the spiritual realm. And the idea of the music of the spheres, which was the ultimate combination of spirituality and science, didn't really seem to fit in anywhere any longer. Though that's actually starting to change now. And in some cases, some of these ideas that Pythagoras had are being proven. So NASA scientists are studying planets and sending back information with vibrations that can be translated into musical tones. And the physicist Brian Greene had this to say about string theory. He says, the central idea of string theory is quite straightforward. If you examine any piece of matter ever more finely, at first you'll find molecules, atoms, subatomic particles. Probe the smaller particles, you'll find something else, a tiny vibrating filament of energy, a little tiny vibrating string. So it looks like Pythagoras and Boethius were all on to something, right? So that's it for this week. We have brought together music and healing and mathematics and string theory all in one episode. Who knew that was possible? The book recommendation is Music and Medicine. It's actually a textbook anthology filled with essays and papers on how music was used as medicine through the ages. You can rent the textbook on Amazon. I've also used some other papers. I'll have links to everything in the show notes at englandcast.com slash music of the spheres. englandcast.com slash music of the spheres. Let me know what you thought about this episode. You can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 8016 Tesco or join the new Tudor Learning Circle, which is a free social network just for Tudor history nerds at tutorlearningcircle.com. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you are having a wonderful summer and I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Blow northern wind, a sandful may be sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoorte boord in bouwerbriek, dat soli semlies ontzicht. Mens voel meiden of licht, ver en vreed of konde. In al die zwaarvliege wonne, boord of lood aan de bon. Never yet in oosten on, not somewhere in London. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. 
the world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.